A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. And for the first time in ages, we're back in the studio doing a normal episode. After all those episodes running around after Tory leadership contenders, Boris Johnson's still not taken me up on the offer of doing a three mile run while discussing social care. But the offer still stands, Boris, if you're listening. I'm delighted to be joined, though, this week by Henry Zeffman, Times political correspondent, who'll discuss what's going on in the Labour Party, just in case you forgot they even still existed. Rachel Sylvester, Times columnist on the Tory party's problem with ethnic minority voters. But first, Owen Bennett, journalist and author of a brand new biography of Michael Gove, Man in a Hurry. This is Owen Bennett. Michael Gove has adopted the mantra of being a man in a hurry. But in the race to be the next Prime Minister, he has been distinctly off the pace. Will he be able to convince MPs he is the best anyone but Boris candidate? Or will another, Old Etonian, prove more popular with his colleagues? So and we should explain that it's thanks to you that we know what Michael Gove got up to of an evening back in the 90s? Back in the late 90s, late yeah. Late 90s. Well, it's actually thanks to him because the book uh, Michael Gove, Man in a Hurry, contained the revelation <laughs> that... Right, that's, that's the last one. I'm going to fine you if you, if you right. mention the title. If I mention what? Michael Gove, Man in a Hurry again? <laughs> I won't mention. No one mentioned Michael Gove, a man in a hurry. I'll see. It, it contained the revelation that in his previous unsuccessful leadership bid, he was asked by aides, Michael, is there anything in your closet we should know about? And he said, yes, cocaine. And they said, best not to mention that. Take the David Cameron defence. And that was in the book. And then when the male who serialised the book went to go for comment on this, he decided just to completely fess up. I went, yeah, I did it on several so- several social occasions 20 years ago. He took cocaine. As a Times journalist, um, we should point out, in the interest yeah. of full transparency. Yeah. I don't think they pay Times journalists enough now to, to fuel a... But if they did, you would... Be no, like- no. No, that's not what you're saying. No, there was okay. one, there was once an issue with the hash cake, but we won't dwell on that now. Um, so, what did you make of Michael Gove? Did you st- started what? A, I suppose. Why did you bother writing a biography, of Michael? Yeah. And did it change your perception of him, sort of digging around in his past? I'll let you into a secret. I was originally do biography of Sadiq Khan. And the publisher said, no, we had someone doing that and it was really boring. <laughs> Have you got anyone else? <laughs> so it was one of them where I started looking around the room and went, Michael Gove? And they're like, yeah, brilliant. So um started digging around into his past. And he's a fascinating guy, right? Because Gove has the demeanour and appearance of being this sort of old Edwardian kind of gentleman. But he comes from a fairly sort of working class family in Aberdeen into which he was adopted into and then he went to a private school which his parents paid for he got a scholarship later on then went to Oxford University and there he enters this world of you know Boris Johnson David Cameron's all these kind of people the Notting Hill set and he's got everywhere he's got in life through his ideas and I'll just just two quick contrasts I want to draw out when Gove went for a job at the Conservative Research Department after university he was told he wasn't sufficiently Tory enough when Cameron goes, there's a phone call from, we think, from the palace, Buckingham Palace, saying, you're about to meet a great man, please hire him. And they do. When Boris Johnson wants to become a journalist, I think he starts at the Times and gets sacked for making up quotes and gets a job on the Telegraph because he happens to know someone there. Michael Gove goes back to Aberdeen to start on the Aberdeen Press and Journal and do his journalism training and learn his shorthand, like all oh, good journalists should do, Matt, like you and I did. So he, he didn't have those kind of doors open to him. He didn't have those connections. Everywhere that he's got has been through his ideas. And I kind of really respect that, that he's managed to reach where he's reached 
um, just do hard work. Rachel, did you know him when he was a journalist? No, I didn't actually. But I agree with Owen. I think he's one of the most interesting politicians actually for this reason. David Laws had this phrase when he worked with him that he was a combination of Che Guevara and Jeeves and there's that he had a picture of Lenin on his office wall and David Cameron called him a Maoist didn't he he is a sort of revolutionary man in a hurry but um, he's also it works doesn't it so many levels he is a sort of he is determined to reform things he's a sort of restless reformer um, but and I also think there's this very interesting thing I wondered in fact whether he had taken the cocaine partly because he never really felt part of this kind of gilded elite this London metropolitan liberal circle and there is a sort of interesting social uh, insecurity I think to him um, that perhaps drives this reforming zeal but also may um, make him you know want to try and be accepted I have to say it is very striking that Uh, in the occasional reports on what David Cameron thinks and feels these days. He apparently bears no animosity to Boris Johnson for backing leave and thereby ending his career and turning his prime ministerial legacy to dust. But he does absolutely revile Michael Gove. And it is hard not to think that there is a class element to the idea that Michael Gove, this man on the fringes but never at the centre of the Notting Hill set, uh, should have just quietly back remained because David Cameron, Etonian, his boss, wanted him to, whereas Boris Johnson, uh, also Eton, was free to do what he liked because that was always the expectation of him. You know, There was certainly a bit of a sense when Michael Gove came out to back leave and sort of turned himself into a major frontline politician of his own uh, rank that, oh, he was getting a bit above his station. And, and, you know, if I were Michael Gove, I think I would feel that very keenly. Henry, Owen, you were there as well, the lobby hustings on Monday, where five, not all, six of the leadership contenders took questions from journalists for sort of 20 minutes. And Michael Gove was asked, are you still in touch with David Cameron? And he replied saying, David is now a private citizen and it's not for me to comment on his private life. And just sort of left it at that, which is like the most obvious way of saying, no, we've not spoken, he still hates my guts. Well, Cameron in private says that Gove's dead to me. And I think Henry's right. You know, Cameron has this attitude to go almost, you know, you were working as a waitress in a cocktail bar when I first met you. Know, it's kind of that kind of attitude to Gove. Um, and, you know, which is, which is not true. Gove was a successful columnist in his own right and he was a successful journalist. Nothing wrong with being a columnist. Is exactly. Absolutely. exactly. He'd, written, he'd written an unsuccessful biography of Nor Michael being Portillo. a waitress in a cocktail no, bar. No, quite exactly. right too. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that when, when the, 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 you know, we all knew that Johnson was going to do whatever Johnson wanted for his career. I think that the split with Gove and Cameron, and it comes down to this, Cameron is loyal to uh, the man next to you in the trench or the man next to you in the, in the drawing room, right? That's where his loyalty comes from. Go with loyalty to ideas. So when it comes to that split, right, do I back what I believe in, Brexit, or do I am I loyal to Cameron? He's always going to be loyal to the idea. And you saw that when he, when he stabbed Boris as well in 2016. It's the same thing again. And I think there's an interesting thing about him as well when it comes to Brexit is it's quite he's quite a sort of unconservative figure. So Brexit, in a way, is this revolution, rather like his public service revolutions. Um, and he's a sort of not... He's not a sort of small C conservative, even if he is a big C conservative. And I think that makes him more willing to take risks than a more kind of patrician Tory like Cameron. I was speaking to a conservative MP uh, about 10 days ago who was weighing up to, to whether to support Matt Hancock or Michael Gove. And they ended up supporting Matt Hancock on the basis, this MP said to me, that Michael Gove is not a conservative. He is a radical 
this MP said, but not a Conservative. And though they broadly agreed with what he had gone and done in the Department for Education and the Ministry of Justice and the Department for Environment, they said it was just too unpredictable what he would do when he went into Downing Street, because that's basically what he's done in every government department he's led, to great effect, and this is the basis of his leadership pitch, the, the fact that he's uh, spearheaded these departments to great effect, is that it's kind of unpredictable. He goes in there, alights on an issue which might not necessarily be the natural big C conservative issue as previous secretaries of state have deemed it, and uh, has enormous ability to drive that agenda through government. But if you're backing him for leader, you don't quite know what his agenda for government as prime minister would actually be. But there be. is, I think, one common theme running through a lot of the things he's done, which is this thing he talked to Alice Thompson me about his caring for the lost boys, he called them, in the Ministry of Justice. So they were the people, and in fact it was the same group of boys in the education system who failed at school, ended up you know, falling into petty crime, then at the end of the road, end up in prison. And there's a sense with him that he could have been one of these lost boys. Whereas I think, and you know, he's, he's just a sort of restlessness, a determination to make sure everyone has chances in life, as he did, but might not have done. Whereas with Cameron, his sort of sense of social justice is a bit like in Jane Austen, Miss, you know, um, Miss uh, Elizabeth, what's her name, um, Emma going around with a basket of goods for the poor in the village, <laughs> rather than, um, you know, it's not really, he's never suffered in, uh, you know, economically in the way that Gove and his family did. And, I mean, we should... Although we've sort of said you know, he 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 did he has done a lot in different government departments. They haven't always been a huge success. And when he was at education, he basically had to be moved in the end because, as well as doing the reforms, he thought the right thing to do. He did pick a lot of fights, and he got you know he became not just about the reforms, but actually just picking a fight with the unions. He became incredibly unpopular with teachers. Who and the problem with it, if you're unpopular with teachers, they keep telling parents that all yeah. the, all this is all Mr. Michael Gove's fault. I, know, I kept getting the parents even that sort of thing. Well, my, my mum's a primary was a primary school teacher, and she hates Gove. I mean, I've written this book basically just to wind her up. Just <laughs> <laughs> have to have a copy of it on the shelf, right? Um, and then peak Gove when he ended up declaring war on Blackadder. Yes, this was there was brilliant. like a whole Christmas yes. story for yeah. no reason at yeah. all. He just decided he was going to have a pick a fight about the historical accuracy of one of the most popular sitcoms ever. Yeah, and he privately admits that that was too far, right? So... But is that the journalist in him? Because even yes. at Hustings this week, there's a sort of slight feeling of he'd actually, rather, the twinkle in his eye, he'd rather the room full of journalists enjoyed his joke more than necessarily landing the right policy message. Well, it's the journalist in him, but it's the kind of Oxford Union debater in him as well, and it's the sense that he can't leave an argument unchallenged. And even when he gets his way in education, it's not enough to get his way. You have to know you're beaten and why you're beaten, and you have to agree with me and have to win on points. And the Blackadder thing is exactly right. He There was a... I think it was a university professor who made some claim that you know Blackadder was giving a false representation of what it was actually like in World War One. And, and Gove, or, or no, he was saying the opposite. And go, anyway, but basically, why is he getting involved in the argument about Blackadder when he's education secretary? And there was loads of examples of that kind of thing. And he's tried to curtail that. Remember, the, the person that he worked closely with a long, long time for this was Dominic Cummings, who, you know, would start a fight in a room with himself <laughs> and still claim that the odds were stacked against him. And then write a 20,000 word blog about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, Dom Cummings, who he just wouldn't. Just doesn't answer my calls, actually, which is quite funny. Because none no, of us do, but well, no, no. So, and then, <laughs> and then the other thing, going back to the Cameron thing very quickly, is you said you know Cameron moved him from education. You know, there's no loyalty from Cameron then, right? Lyndon Crosby comes in and says, "Oh, he's toxic." But he's doing the reforms that Cameron said was fine, right? right? So there's no there's no loyalty from Cameron at that moment. And this is where the Sarah Vine thing gets slightly interesting because Sarah Vine wrote a piece. Sarah Vine, Michael Gove's wife. Yeah, he wrote a piece saying that uh, she wrote a piece in, in response to the book saying, "I've not seen the book." 
but I'm told there's revelations about me in there. There's not Sarah, because I know that will annoy you even more. <laughs> and, um, but and she's like, oh, it paints me out as a Lady Macbeth figure. And I don't think Sarah Vine is a Lady Macbeth figure. I think she's very supportive of her husband, whether he chooses to stand for leader or not. I think she's just very, very supportive of him. But in that moment when your boss says, you got to back me, and you think, well, hold on a minute, a year ago, two years ago, you didn't back me, and you discuss it with your wife, I'm sure she would say, well, you don't owe him any false loyalty. Uh, Michael and I think that's where that dynamic comes in it's just funny that let's go back to your sort of your where we started his ability to go up against Boris Johnson full disclosure it's Tuesday morning so it's before the the, the second round of the voting of Tory MPs we don't actually know who's been knocked out but we, there's a, we assume that Michael Gove will at least survive this round can he go all the way is is Boris beatable is, is it just a sort of pointless exam question to ask if Michael Gove can beat him because no one can I don't think Michael Gove can beat him I think as I've hinted you know the Rory Stewart dynamic is if, if you're thinking, well, I'll, I'll put Go through because he'll take some strips off Boris. I think you now think Rory Stewart's going to do that even more. And what's interesting with Boris is that on that campaign launch, which came out a couple of days after the cocaine revelations, he decided to move the new story on by attacking Boris quite a bit. Then over the weekend, he rode back and was saying, oh, I would serve in a Boris cabinet, which just fits into that notion that actually he's a bit two-faced. Whereas at least Rory Stewart has been consistent and said, I wouldn't give Boris the code to the nuclear submarine. So now if, you, if, you're, if you're there going, I want someone in the final two who's going to take a strip off Boris, you're going to back Rory. I think personally you'd back Rory now over Michael. Is that, Rachel, is that not the sort of Liz Kendall strategy from the <laughs> Labour leadership contest? That there was a runaway, you know, runaway figure in uh, Jeremy Corbyn, Andy Burnham in Jeremy and Yvette Cooper didn't really know what to do and they sort of flip-flopped a bit, you know, tried to appeal to the core. And Liz Kendall just went for this very purist, new Labourish, I love Tony Blair message, which which people in Westminster absolutely lapped up and then she got 4%. I think it's slightly different to that. I think, in a way, Roy Stewart could be more of the Jeremy Corbyn figure because there is this sort of insurgency aspect to him. And also he's got, I mean, oddly, he's sort of oddly charismatic when he sort of shouldn't be. There is a sort of <laughs> emotional <laughs> intelligence to him as well as a intellect. Um, and so it's it's more the case of, you know, Boris is the favourite, the front runner, slightly looking a bit arrogant, measuring up the curtains, you know, who's gonna, he going to fire from the cabinet? And then actually this sort of ins- plucky insurgent could come through, you know, in a way that's more of a challenge than Liz Kendall. The problem with Liz Kendall was she was the almost of the new Labour establishment figure, whereas I don't think anyone could say Rory Stewart is that. I, mean, I think the comparisons between Rory Stewart and Jeremy Corbyn burrow much deeper than just the fact that he's an insurgent who no one was paying much attention to a few weeks ago. His basic his basic pitch is straight talking honest politics, which was Jeremy Corbyn's in twenty fifteen. He's he his message throughout is uh, none of this is that complicated if you're just honest with the British people, if you just level with the British people. Now, there's a slight uh, wrinkle to it, which is that his honesty is about how complicated it is. Uh, and, you know, part for a second, the question about whether he is being honest, because I don't think he is. Uh, there is no chance of Theresa May's deal getting through the House of Commons in unamended form uh, and pretty much no and chance. And especially not with him as leader. Well, it's possible Boris could... Somebody like Boris Johnson, a Brexiteer, could take Theresa May's deal, but given how unpopular Rory Stewart is with precisely the people he would need to get on board. Well, quite. But I do... And and, and there's a second element to Rory Stewart's appeal, which I think is just worth noting, which is that it is starting to transcend the Conservative Party. Well, more than that, it seems to come predominantly from people who are not part of or sympathetic to the Conservative Party. And he keeps talking about how many views his videos has had, his videos have had on Twitter and on Facebook and his popularity on social media. And if I were a Conservative MP, I'd be worried just about what he's going to do on the back benches 
if, when Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister? You know, is Rory Stewart going to keep walking around random parts of the country telling the public that the Conservative Prime Minister is lying to them? Because, frankly, who doesn't like it when they get retweets and adored on social media? Uh, not that I've ever experienced it to the level of Rory Stewart. Um, <laughs> and I just start to worry about the kind of destabilising force that Rory Stewart, even if he goes out of the leadership contest tonight or tomorrow or on Thursday, might be mobilising effectively the centrist dads of the UK and mums uh, and childless uh, thank you Andrew Letson. Um, but I just, I just think Rory Stewart is going to be a fascinating figure long beyond this leadership race and also it's the question for the Tory party which leads on to something I was going to talk about more generally but do they want to just appeal to their core base or are they also trying to reach out to Labour and Liberal Democrat voters? Rachel, you've done my job for me. Um, let's move on. We'll, we'll park, we'll park uh, Michael Gofer now and see how he gets on this week. But let's move on. This is Rachel Sylvester. The Tories have a serious problem with ethnic minority voters. At the last election, more than three quarters of black and Asian voters supported Labour and less than a fifth backed the Conservatives. They should think very carefully about anointing Boris Johnson as leader. He once wrote about flag-waving pickaninnies and he compared women in burkas to letterboxes. They're in danger of even further reducing their appeal in this crucial section of the electorate if they go for him. So, Rachel, it has been one of these sort of things bubbling away in the background for some time now, the, the Tories totally shedding support amongst ethnic minority voters. And you just think it's just going to get worse under Boris Johnson? Yeah, I, what's really interesting, um, I spoke to Sajid Javid a few months ago, and he said when he first became an MP, his father was so proud, he went and told all his friends at the mosque, and all the friends assumed he was a Labour MP. There was no way they thought he could be a Conservative, because Conservative just, you know, uh, an Asian person would never become a Conservative MP. Um, so although there's a support for the values and policies of the Tory party among eth- some many ethnic minority communities, somehow the Tory brand is very tainted. Um, and that goes back to Enoch Powell, Norman Tebbit and the cricket test. And then more recently, there have been a whole series of other things. So Windrush, Go Home Vans, Hostile Environment on Immigration. Uh, and then most crucially in this context, Boris Johnson and his co- sort of dog whistle comments on the burqa, uh, trying to appeal to this kind of right wing Trump type populist politics. Um, and I think they, you know, the the Tory MPs think, oh, Boris Johnson has got outreach and appeal and he won in multicultural London. But actually, he only won in London on the basis of white votes. And it's sort of interesting that whenever it looks like the Tories might have shaken that off a bit, some backbench MP goes and sets it all back another yeah. 10 years with a stupid tweet or a comment at a event that they thought wasn't being recorded. And But if they go for Boris Johnson as leader... This is a man who has... It's centre stage. It's not just some random backbencher. It is the leader of the party who said this stuff. I think... And already last week, the chair of the Muslim... Uh, forum for the Tory party, Mohammed Amin, said he would quit if Boris Johnson becomes leader. I think they'll have a real problem. And it really matters because this is a growing section of the electorate. There are a growing number of constituencies that are going to be dependent on winning over these votes sort of marginal seats. Uh, I think it's more than 100 potentially at the next election that could um, be tipping on the basis of these votes. And it's, it's you know, they're potentially, um, you know, cut it, cutting themselves out of power. And Henry, one of the issues with the anti-Semitism problem in the Labour Party, and people said, oh, what about Islamophobia in the Tory party, is that no one is seriously thinking that Theresa May is peddling Islamophobia or harbouring people who are Islamophobic. But if Boris Johnson becomes leader, 
that becomes a much harder line to hold. In, we, we could have a delightful contest of who's got the bigger bassist as party leader. And, and what's really potentially devastating is it basically goes for every socially liberal issue, and Boris does have social liberal bona fides on some issues, but he also has written something horrible and offensive about all those same issues as well. So, yes, he was one of the first Conservatives to campaign for equal marriage or, or in, in the sort of uh, recent times. But then also he's written horrible homophobic slurs in the Daily Telegraph. So, you know, pick your side and people will on either side. And, you know... So he's literally, it, much like he wrote two columns for whether or not to bat leave or remain he's exactly. written a there column a on almost for everything uh with with boris johnson um, and they're often not very funny i mean I, I i think rachel's point about uh him winning the london mayoralty with the donut strategy the outer london votes strategy is really pertinent there is so much nonsense being talked by conservative mps about the fact that boris johnson won in london and the idea that that is any way a read across to what is going on now and the challenge facing the Conservative Party now. Remember the circumstances of, of his first mayoral victory in 2008. It was against a two-term mayor, Ken Livingstone. Ken Livingstone, who was not the Ken Livingstone of now, but he was beginning <laughs> to become pretty unpopular and had had his uh, opening flirtation with anti-Semitic slurs. Uh, this was 2008 as a unpopular National Labour government, the same party as the London mayor, was nearing... Uh, the end of three terms, uh, the economy was in a dire state nationally. Um, that is not the same as renewing the Conservative Party in office. Um, Boris and Johnson. Also, he's so alienated Remainers. Well, exactly. Just, uh, I mean, so that's 48% before you even start. So his support used to be broad but shallow, and now it is narrow but deep, and that is not what you want in a Prime Minister. And, you know, the sort of half-remembered Have I Got News For You appearances, which, yes, if you go back and watch them on YouTube, were very funny. But he was last on Have I Got News For You in 2006. There are people who will vote in the first general election, which Boris Johnson contests as Prime Minister, who were in nappies when he was on Have I Got News For You, in the cot upstairs while their parents laughed about it. Um, It is just... It genuinely boggles my mind the number of Conservative MPs who think that because he beat Ken Livingstone in 2008 and then narrowly, narrowly held against an even more unpopular Ken Livingstone in 2012, that he can, you know, win over the whole country. He might end up winning over the whole country, but it will not be because of that. We, I, I was just remembering that you and I wrote about this issue of the Tories' problem with ethnic minority voters at the end of 2017. That the, the, Theresa May's Downing Street was gripped by this as an issue. And they the problem was at the time they were putting it down to oh, it's an image problem that ethnic minority voters share Tory values, but they don't want to vote for us. But it's been going on for so long. And I remember at the time they, the, the polling then was that it was the levels of support were down to what they'd seen in 2001 under Ian Duncan Smith. Hmm. They sort of reversed all the, all the Tory gains. Owen, what do you make of it? Because do you think that this is just metropolitan and liberal elite Westminster bubble types who don't like the fact that Boris Johnson has some strong views which chime with people outside? No, I, I think it goes deeper into that. I think Henry's analysis is, is pretty spot on. I think you're reading, a lot of Tories are reading 2008 and it's not 2008 anymore. And even if you look at 2016, it's not 2016 anymore. We've had three years since the referendum. A lot of people who backed Brexit, you know, it's, it is possible to back Brexit to not... Um, regret your vote, but still think the Leave campaign was pretty shabby, and still actually be pretty annoyed about what was on the side of that bus. So I still, th- I think there is a, there is a lot of anger out there from people. I still think if there was another referendum, Leave would win again. But I think it's possible to have both those views. And let's face it, Boris Johnson did not cover himself in glory 
in office, right? So most people would, would know Boris from his time as Foreign Secretary. And, uh, and I believe that this country, actually, we don't like our diplomats to go out and make jokes about World War Two guards being beaten up or dead bodies in Libya or, you know, the... the um, Nadim Zanali Ratcliffe in the, in the prison in Iran. I think people do see that as as massive, not just, as sort of beyond faux pas, as just incompetence. And what Boris Johnson's doing by not putting himself out there for scrutiny, he's then adding another layer on top of that. that actually, he just he thinks he's 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 above it all and he doesn't need to answer any questions. And so now he's coming across as not just useless, but sort of dictatorially useless. I think Boris Johnson's tenure as Foreign Secretary is really. Uh strange feature of this race in that it's barely talked about no, by Boris's supporters. And, I find it really odd. and it is really, really odd. And what's so striking about his period as Foreign Secretary is that he tried to do the job in a really sober fashion at first. He this was his opportunity. I mean remember Theresa May did not need to give him a big job. He was so diminished at the point at which she appointed her cabinet and it was, you know, in hindsight particularly strange that she resurrected him. Uh, and he tried to show that he was capable of being a distinguished and sober and practical leader and he just wasn't very good at the job quite apart from the catalogue of gas which owen mentioned um his one success although it is contested in downing street the extent to which it was his success rather than theresa may's was assembling quite a severe multinational response to the script out case but other than that he has pretty much nothing to point to from two years as foreign secretary, and in fact, diminished clout in the it world. His launch didn't even really do it. He just went on about. He went on about his period as mayor of yeah. London. And also, I think he's got the same problem that Gove's got: is in a room full of journalists who go for the laugh over going over the serious point. It's almost like newspaper columnists shouldn't become politicians. But <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The British people have had enough of experts and journalists. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think I think that's the problem that Boris has got. Like Gove, is that. He never, you know, he, he, if there's a joke to be made, he will make it. He'll never duck, the, he'll, he'll never just let that ball fly past. He'll always try and hit it. And that does undermine the series. And actually, it is launched. It looked really bad when uh, Beth Rigby from Sky News was asking about a question of his character. And he started yeah, going, my parrot, 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 parrot. But Conservative MPs who are supporting him can't work out if they are supporting him because of Have I Got News For You, Boris, or because of newly self-disciplined He's Had A Haircut, Boris. No, they're supporting him because they think he's going to win and they want a job. He might get a job out of it. But I mean, as, it is as basic as that. As I think Paul Masterton, the Tory MP, um, tweeted me yesterday, he said that he, cause he was supporting someone else. I said, uh, so you're not supporting Boris then, you're not offered a job. And he, he replied, I think he's using the hashtag four chancellors or five defence yeah. secretaries. The government is already pretty yeah. full with people who've been promised jobs by Boris Johnson. And also he's promised them all different positions on Brexit. So, you know, yeah. Mark Francois and Matt Hancock are not both going to be happy. And, and crucially, all of this is going to be decided by Tory party members. We had an extraordinary poll in the um, in Red Box and in the Times on Tuesday morning, which showed that more than half of Tory M- members would be willing to destroy the Tory party if it means getting Brexit. Uh, 77% of members think that Boris Johnson make a good Prime Minister compared to 31% of the general public. And that's the... There's this huge tension that the people who... I mean, all party people, members of political parties are weird, but the the people choosing the Prime Minister this time round are particularly odd compared to the rest of the and country. And remember, 71% male, 97% white, and 40-40% over 65. Isn't it ironic that the Tory MP, the justification for backing Boris is that he can reach out to non-Tory voters, right? Who's the guy getting non-Tory voters turning up to his events? Rory Stewart. He's the guy that everyone's saying is a joke. I'm not saying, you know, I, I get all the reasons of the Brexit party in France. But I do understand there is a lot of caveats. But you've got a guy literally demonstrating he can reach out to the Tory party and they're saying, no, don't want him. I mean, in defence of Tory MPs and members more generally on Rory Stewart, it is clear that he is reaching out to non-Tory voters. 
he'd just lose existing Tory members <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, um, I think this joke's been made several times, but he's doing a brilliant job as running for the Lib Dem leadership. OK, in a moment, we'll talk about the Labour Party, just because I feel like we should. We'll be back after this short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast with me, Matt Chorley, joined in the studio by Owen Bennett, Rachel Sylvester, and this is Henry Zeffman. The Labour Party doesn't need a leadership election to expose its own divisions over Brexit. This week, Tom Watson made a speech about Europe that was really about Jeremy Corbyn, saying Labour must become a proudly Remain party. With the distinct possibility of a general election before long, Labour needs to work out where it stands on Brexit. So it's interesting, isn't it? Tom Watson keeps popping up and laying out his fresh demands to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I can't remember how many days it we're up to now, but it's quite a few since he did that bit when the Labour MPs quit to form independentchangeuk.org.com.change, or whatever they're called. And Tom Watson laid out these demands, which included he wanted a reshuffle, he wanted more talent brought into the party, the policy platform had to shift. Does Jeremy Corbyn just ignore everything that his deputy leader says now? Yes. I mean, insofar as Tom Watson is deputy leader of the Labour Party, uh, his demands of the leader of the Labour Party mean nothing. Insofar as he is mobilising a position which members of the Labour Party and supporters of the Labour Party hold and are frustrated by Jeremy Corbyn's seeming unwillingness to hold, uh, he is mobilising that grievance very effectively. Uh, and that's nothing to do with him being deputy leader and the dynamics between him and Jeremy Corbyn. But it is a cunning kind of wedge that he is using. He's trying to use the Labour membership, the root of Jeremy Corbyn's support, against Jeremy Corbyn. So this week uh, he gave a speech sort of making... I mean, people talk after the referendum, they said, oh, the Remain campaign just didn't talk about D-Day enough and didn't talk about European cooperation enough and didn't talk about what a brilliant peace project it is. I'm very sceptical of the idea that that um, wrapping themselves in the European flag and talking about a patriotic case for singing Ode to Joy would have won the referendum, but Tom Watson did that this week uh, and talked about European cooperation and the undeniable success story of the EU in bringing peace to the European continent. But what he was really trying to do, the great unspoken, was budge the Labour leadership into embracing a second referendum. And it's important to use the word embracing because they have actually whipped their MPs to vote for a second referendum quite a few times now, albeit against other options which are less palatable to them. Um, But what Watson is trying to say is it's not just enough to occasionally vote for a second referendum when it comes to the floor of the House of Commons and you kind of know that it's not going to pass. The Labour Party needs to champion a second referendum, champion remaining in the EU and turn that into its... European policy and therefore it's sort of central policy of the day. 
but where does all this end up? Because I remember speaking to some of those MPs who quit previously and went off to form their own groups, and they were they were frustrated with lots of people, but they were, they were particularly frustrated with Tom Watson. They'd had enough of the sort of he puts his arm around them and says, "Oh, just hang on in there. It's all going to be all right in the end." What is the end point? Is it him launching a challenge? Is it him breaking away? No. Uh, I don't think Tom Watson is going to leave the Labour Party. Um, and I think his, uh, it's called the Future Britain Group, uh, which was his kind of group for people very upset by the direction of the Labour Party who don't want to leave, was really a way of casting his arm over them and saying, look, 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 we can we can have influence inside the tent. Go on, please, please don't go. Um, but... Uh, I think I think Tom Watson wants to nudge Jeremy Corbyn into a uh, simultaneously nudge Jeremy Corbyn into a different policy stance on Europe, while also kind of flaunting to the Labour members that there are differences of opinion and that he, Tom Watson, who they disagree with on everything, is actually much closer to them. Parking the question of how sincere he actually is about Europe is much closer <laughs> to them on Europe than the man that they put into the Labour leadership in 2015, re-anointed in 2016, and has a plausible <coughs> chance of being the next Prime Minister. What do you make of it, Rachel? Is it, does it matter, the problems in the Labour Party, given the Tory party of so bound up in problems of his own? really does, because actually it could determine the outcome of what happens, because the uh, House of Commons is so evenly balanced. And I think in terms of the Labour politics, it's really interesting because it's the sort of young, enthusiastic members who chanted Jeremy Corbyn's name at Glastonbury, who are also the most pro-European and pro a referendum and things like that. So there's and there's a there's a mixture of a sort of ideological disagreement among those among Corbyn who are actually, you know, quite Eurosceptic, um, you know, socialism in one country type attitude, but they're wrapping that up in a strategic uh, political position, which is saying we mustn't alienate the white working class Northern Heartland voters. Whereas actually, when you look at the poll the results of the European elections, the votes split the votes that Labour lost split four to one in favour of the overtly remain parties, the Greens, Lib Dems, etc. Yeah, there was about about ten percent went off to and the then Brexit only yeah. you know, exactly. the Brexit and UKIP, they lost far fewer to the the overtly Brexity parties. So there's a they they're they're using um that kind of electoral argument as an excuse really for their ideological opposition to a referendum, I think. And what do you make of this? I mean, what happens then if Boris Johnson fails, we we get a general election Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister. He just We just repeat the last three years of chaos with Theresa May, don't we? He Absolutely not, because he's going to go and ask for a jobs first Brexit. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of this, Matt, but he has already been talking to the EU and he's all sorted out. If only they'd give him a chance to do his jobs first Brexit. No, you're right. I mean, if Corbyn does become Prime Minister, we're still going to be leaving the European Union, right? I mean, I, I think that that is clear from Corbyn, it's clear from his advisors. And Tom Watson, I kind of, I feel a bit sorry for Tom Watson because he stands up and makes these speeches and everyone goes, all right, Tom, but it doesn't make a, it doesn't want to change the difference to anything, right? He had that meeting of all the MPs, you know, who wanted to feel loved and cared for after the, the lot left to form, wherever they formed that week. And But what's happened since? I think some minutes were circulated after the meeting, but I've not seen any, you know... Yeah, set up the, some policy working groups. Yeah, exactly, but nothing's come out of it. It's all, it's all very, like... It's the equivalent of the Malthouse Compromise. Go in a room and do some colouring in, and then come out and show us, and we can say, oh, isn't that good? Yeah, well, no, I'll, I'll take that to Mr Barnier. It's just... It's not going to change anything, because Corbyn is just so reluctant to do anything different. But don't you think um, what happens in the party conference will be really important? So actually, won't... 
at the party conference, I, do, surely the members will impose on Corbyn if he doesn't move before then a much more overt support for the referendum. So I think by the time of the next election, whenever it is, Labour will have moved to that position if we're still in the EU. I mean, presumably what happens at party conference is a, a sort of year-on version of this compromise that was reached last time. So last year, uh, loads of Labour, constituency Labour parties submitted motions to party conference saying we need to back a second referendum or a people's vote or whatever you want to call it. And uh, basically loads of Labour figures, union leaders, Keir Starmer, advisors sat down in a room for hours called a compositing meeting um, and came up with this amazing formulation where if they can't get a deal of with certain conditions, then all options remain on the table, including a public, not people's public, vote. So I assume we just end up with another compromise into which every wing of the party can read what it wants, but that compromise will be more Remainy than last year's, simply by the fact that the intervening year has happened. Will the compromise simply be, if Labour becomes uh, the government, we will negotiate Brexit, and if we can't get a good deal, then we'll have a people's vote on it. But ergo, we're going to get a good deal because we're Labour. That's the the kind of logical loop, right? At what point do we see Labour associations going to the conference just demanding all out revoke, just stop the whole thing? Oh, I think there'll be some of that this year, for sure. I mean, we we are now in a in a kind of phase where the the people's vote tendency in the in the country and in remain leaning parties is merging with the revoke tendency anyway. I mean, towards the end of the European elections, Change UK RIP actually made is that the, the case. new name now Change UK. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the initials of who's left. Yeah. <laughs> um, they uh, they began to advocate revoke because they said there wasn't time before October the thirty first to hold the referendum. I mean, it obviously failed as a differentiation strategy, but I wouldn't be surprised if that argument is resurrected uh, in different parts of the British political debate, not least because it was made by Chukwu Munna, who is now the industry spokesman for the Liberal Democrats. But, but that's what Michael Gove, um, his, Michael Gove, a man in a hurry, has always been saying, <laughs> that uh, come October 31st, that the choice will be for Parliament, it will be no deal or revoke, and he thinks Parliament will... Go for, a Go for a vote. That's that's why you wanted to get out before then. And you've touched on it there, Henry. But it will be interesting when we look ahead to the party conference season. We'll obviously have a new prime minister, and that will be very exciting for the Tory party. The Labour Party will be uh, in tying itself in knots on Brexit. Before we even get there, we get the Lib Dem conference, a conference that you and I feared we might not even get to. Bournemouth's crazy yeah, golf if course. If there are any other... red box listeners who uh, <laughs> voted Liberal Democrat, thank you. Uh, you gave Matt and I a good case to have a, a nice, uh, a nice weekend day out by the, the seaside. seaside. But their um, rejuvenated party with a new party leader and whatever they do on Brexit will, to some extent, set the tone definitely for what happens the following week at the Labour Party. So Absolutely. Think, so that's why we should definitely go and wow. have a game of crazy golf. They've got a very good course in Bournemouth. I think that's probably all we've got time for. I mean, before we go, I think you might have written a book. Um, what is the What's the best f- new fact that you, you found out about Michael Gover, the funniest thing that you came across? He used to make, used to make a lot of prank phone calls, and he rang up uh, the author of Inspector Morse, pretending to be an East End gangster, <laughs> going, oh, is that Colin? I really effing love your Inspector Morse. It's effing brilliant, which is quite weird. And then there's an old TV show he did on Channel 4 called... Um, a stab in the dark with David Baddiel, which is filmed in a car park with a bunch of spotty teenagers who looked like they were there because of some sort of community service and deliver these very, very unfunny monologues. I think you might have even rhymed me a little bit, Matt. And um, he would deliver these monologues. My monologues are funny, though. Yeah, he would deliver these monologues. And there was one point where he was, he basically propositioned a member of the audience to have sex with him. It was very, very odd. 
Very odd. Well, that's, if that's not a reason to buy your book, I don't know what is. Uh, my huge thanks to uh, Owen Bennett, Henry Zeffman and Rachel Sylvester. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen so you don't miss any of our random future special episodes. Subscribe to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox and get tickets to my tour at mytimesplus.co.uk. I'm coming to a theatre near you as long as you live mainly in the south. Uh, but for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. 